Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Tuesday, September 8th here in New York City. Hope everyone is doing well, staying safe and healthy and had a nice, enjoyable, long Labor Day weekend. Coming up today on the podcast is a really interesting uh, interview and discussion I had yesterday afternoon with Daniel Kawashima. He is also better known as Coach Daniel on YouTube, where he has over 180,000 subscribers, doing a lot of X's and O's, breakdown videos of the NBA and college basketball. Really, really interesting guy. Great YouTube channel. Recommend everyone going and subscribing to that and checking out his videos. We talk about how he started his channel, what goes into making all the videos, and we talked about the NBA playoffs. So we didn't get a chance to talk about uh, the games that obviously happened last night. Uh, so my Raptors uh, optimism maybe um, doesn't seem as, uh, it was the 2020 hindsight, doesn't seem as uh, as great. But anyway, it was a really great conversation. So I'm going to hit the music, and when we come back, it's my interview and discussion from Yesterday afternoon with Coach Daniel. Joining me today on the Double Double is a special guest, Daniel Kawashima, better known as Coach Daniel. He hosts and runs one of the most successful basketball-focused YouTube channels out there with over 180,000 subscribers as of today. His channel focuses on breaking down strategy and the X's and O's of the NBA game, making complicated terms easy to understand and and digest for for, for fans of all levels. His most recent video highlighted the coaching strategies of the Toronto Raptors and the Boston Celtics and how they are hunting favorable matchups to attack on offense. I'm thrilled he's taking the time to join me today. Daniel, how's it going? Uh, It's going well. What an introduction. Thank you. For sure, for sure. So... Kind of just take us back to the beginning almost. Where did you grow up and how did you just first get involved with, with basketball? Yeah, uh, I grew up in uh, Los Angeles, California. And basically, I-, I played basketball at a pretty young age. And for some reason, at around 14 or 15 years old, I became interested in the X's and O's aspect and kind of the strategy aspect. I started reading a bunch of coaching books and watching channels like Beatball Breakdown on YouTube and just getting immersed in that. And so around that time, that's where I started my channel. Uh, so, yeah, basketball has always been uh, a, a passion of mine. And, yeah, so that, that's when I started my channel. That's pretty cool. So, so, you, so you've so you been playing basketball since you were young. Did you play in high school? Did you have a recruiting process like at all to, to try and play in college? I did play in high school. Uh, I played, uh, yeah, high school, North Hollywood High School okay. uh, in North Hollywood. Uh, in terms of playing at college, I-, I considered it. I wouldn't have been very good, definitely. Uh, I'm only 5'10", but and not very athletic, I should <laughs> add. Uh, and I-, I eventually went to a, a big D1 school, uh, Wisconsin-Madison. Okay, nice. So there was no chance to play there, of course. Right, right. So... So you kind of mentioned that you had uh, the first idea to, to, to start your YouTube channel after watching some others on YouTube when, when you were younger. 
was it just at, was was there just a moment that you remember where you watched a really cool video and you're like, hey, I could do this too, or or, or kind of just when did uh when did you I guess just first start to actually make the Coach Daniel channel? Yeah, so I mean, in terms of getting the channel up and running, uh, that was around uh, close to seven years ago now. So when I was around fifteen or sixteen years old, and B-ball breakdown was definitely the main inspiration. Uh, I've been to all of his videos probably once or twice, and my original thought going into it was, okay, I, I don't want to necessarily just copy what B-ball breakdown's doing. And my thought process at the time was, I'm just going to break down the last minute of a game and kind of break down the last second plays mm-hmm. but eventually i kind of realized oh I, there's there's no harm in reaching out and kind of the, the other 47 minutes of the game and so that's that's kind of what i did interesting so you're at uw madison obviously they have a really really great very successful basketball program there while you were making these videos while you're in high school and in college, did you ever think about getting involved at all with the basketball program at UW-Madison, even if you couldn't play, but just helping out either as in, in the video room or just uh, as a manager or, or something to that extent? Definitely. Definitely. Uh, I, one of the reasons I wanted to go there was to be a manager, but I was kind of a bit naive and didn't realize, especially at a big T1 school like UW-Madison, and they were coming off the Frank Kaminsky years, mm. that it's pretty. it was pretty difficult to get a position. So I think I got one interview with uh, them, and but I didn't get the manager position my freshman year. And then after that, I kind of realized that, in a way, it was a blessing in disguise because it allowed me to focus on my channel more, mm. uh, which I was unsure how much I was going to focus on it when I entered college. So I definitely did want to get involved with the basketball program, but it just didn't work out. Now... I've come from a student athlete background in college and, you know, everyone always harps on, you know, it's balancing academics, your all your classes with the basketball part of it, but you're also kind of starting up in, in some respects, your own company in a way of your YouTube channel. How did you go about balancing, Hey, I got my academics due, but also my subscriber base is, is growing a lot. I have to put out this video. I, I have to put out my weekly video and just breaking down a game. How did you balance your your starting up really and continuing your, your small business with your YouTube channel and trying to do as well as you can academically at a very challenging school like, like Wisconsin-Madison? Yeah, you know, to be honest, I, I didn't, because I wasn't necessarily trying to go for a 4.0 GPA, I didn't. <laughs> Uh, find the, uh, the the classes too challenging, so I definitely spend more time on my channel, especially especially in my junior and senior years, mm-hmm. uh, especially in my senior year. But I, it would have been so I majored in personal finance, and if I was doing an engineering major or something a little more challenging, then I'm sure it, it would have been more difficult. But to be perfectly honest, it, the academics uh, it didn't it didn't take a whole lot of my time and. I was content with getting like a 3.0 GPA. Gotcha. So just for just for anyone who doesn't really understand, they just click on your video, they think it's great, and then they don't think about it again. How long and just how much time and effort goes into making just one of your videos on your YouTube channel? And can you kind of just explain the editing process uh, and how long it takes to edit just the long-form video with the voiceovers, background music, highlights, and just everything else that goes onto the screen? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and... 
the answer would be it depends. Uh, actually, in the playoffs, it takes a little less time at times because if I'm just breaking down a single game, then I'm just uh, I watch the game uh, as it happens. Or what, what I do is I record the game mm. and then I start like 40 minutes into it, so I miss the commercials. Yep. And then if let, let's say I want to break down that game, I'll, I'll rewatch it and uh, tag the clip that I, I want to get. And then I have access to some video software, so I can just download the clips. Uh, right from my computer, and then I, I get into the process of, well, I would say there's some parts of the process that don't take very long, like the music, that's pretty simple. I have the I have the music, I add it to the video, and I adjust the volume. What takes, I think, more time than what people probably understand is just the thought process of how I'm going to organize the video, because... Yeah each video has to have a certain narrative or at least like, you know, uh, ha- a topic of, of what I want to highlight and describe because there's so much to talk about in a single game yeah. because I have to fit it all within 10 minutes, essentially. So I have to, and, and essentially it's like I'm making maybe like a short movie or something yeah. where I, I start out with content that could fill 17 minutes, but then I slowly cut it down uh, but to answer your question, let, let's say in the off season where uh, I might have more time to make just one video a week. I mean, those videos could take uh, 30 hours, uh, 20 hours, 35 hours, something like that, because then I'm really watching more film. And if I want to do a video on the Raptors or the Bucks defense, I might watch eight games and really look at all the stats I, I need to to kind of make it the best video possible. 100%. The, the way that... The- the way that I like to think about it is like a, a video you like like yours that's six to eleven minutes in the playoffs. It's it's almost like a fifteen to twenty page essay assignment in high school where a lot of times the hardest part to get started is figuring out what exactly you're going to say and how you're going to structure it and just the tone and the narrative because in a whole game, you know, there's how many pick and rolls are there in a Raptor Celtics game? You know, there's dozens and dozens of dozens, but you got to go and figure out which exact ones you know, you want to pick out to exactly show the point you're trying to make. And I don't think people realize that so much thought process goes into, like in a movie, which screen and which cut is the one that's going to make it into the final product. Yeah, exactly. And then there's also an emphasis on, you know, well, I want my uh, information to be accurate. So yep. I, I want to watch as much film as I can. So if I'm, you know, putting my information and analysis on a public platform, that it's going to be at least 90% correct yeah. or at least I'm doing the best that I can to not, you know, say the Raptors are playing good pick-and-roll defense, but in fact they're playing bad pick-and-roll defense. Like, that would be a disservice to the viewers. 100%. So you mentioned that you record games on TV and then start 30 to 40 minutes later to skip the commercials, and I personally believe that that is a high, high-level veteran-style move that my dad has taught me over the years of being able to skip through all the commercials, especially just these as a side change, but just especially just because it seems like the NBA right now has the same ad package for all these games. It's just the same ads over and over and over again. And it's become a running joke on, on it's become a running joke on Twitter that everyone is sick of the same DraftKings ad and the progressive commercials. I'm curious about once you start watching the game, and this is a, a, a two-part question, but since you started your, your YouTube channel, you're watching the game, how has your basketball IQ 
almost evolved since you started your YouTube channel? Or just like when you're watching a game, are you noticing these little things that you never saw before or, or rarely saw because you've been because you've had so much detailed film study in your past that, that you're now noticing new things? Yeah, uh, I would say, so, first off, just having the channel and creating content and trying to find new angles or different things to share with my audience, that has increased my basketball IQ exponentially. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, so, for anyone who wants to increase their basketball IQ, I always recommend, you know, trying to create or analyze film because that's, sure. that's, that's one of the best ways to learn. Uh I mean, you're definitely still learning new things now. Uh, even recently, just uh, I made a video a few weeks ago that involved the Celtics defense, and in one of the clips, I heard Brad Stevens uh, yell out on the court the steer switch. And I've been making videos for six or seven years, but I've never heard someone write about the steer switch or a coach yell it out in the game. And But it's really just a simple switch where you're uh, on a double-drag screen, uh, the, the defense switches the first screen, and then the, the defender steers the ball handler uh, toward one side of the court. But that's an example of how, uh, you know, I, I had never heard that. I and I mean, I've, I'd seen it, but I hadn't heard the term. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of an example of how, even you know, even though I'm watching a game or two a day, uh, you can still learn new things if you kind of really try to pay attention and. And uh, also, uh, just that you can learn a bunch just by looking what the coaches do. So yeah. if the coaches uh, have a certain problem, then but like Nick Nurse may go to his own defense, then that's useful information that I can take if, let's say, I ever wanted to coach or just kind of seeing how the good coaches go about solving a problem. Now, the second part is is that, it's, you know, this is probably like, you're watching the game. The coach is making an adjustment. Nick Nurse goes to his zone, or you hear that Brad Stevens yells out the the steer coverage. Are you thinking when when you see something like that, or or a trend start to emerge in a, in a couple of games now that you've watched, that that's something you could feature on on one of your next videos, or does or does like your real planning and kind of thinking about uh, the next video you're going to make come later, just from rewatching some some games? Yeah. Uh... You know, when when you hear something like the steer switch, and that was on a rewatch, so I, I wasn't watching a game live. Uh, when you hear something that different, and I knew it would make for good content, it immediately pops into my head. Uh, I, I need to find a way to get this in a video, and that's what happened. It, it didn't really even fit with my my uh, the video I did, but I, I just wanted to get that information out there yeah. because I knew people would, would appreciate that. Uh, in general, when I'm watching games live, I try not to think too much ahead but at times you can't help it like uh if the magic are beating the bucks in game one then it immediately comes to mind okay how can i make a video about this is this is this worth making a video on uh and then you know to be honest there's thoughts in my head that go okay am i making this video just to get views and get attention and make some money or is there actually interesting exit and and strategy things that my core viewers would appreciate and that's something that I've struggled with uh, even the last month. Yeah. Uh, so I hope that kind of answers your question, but yeah. Yeah, and, and I guess my, my last question on, on just the channel before we get to some of your thoughts just from watching the playoff games is people, we, 
we see it now in, in all forms of news and YouTube and everything, but this, this kind of this click culture of people doing things to try to get as many clicks as possible. How do you balance just trusting that, hey, my content is good enough to get the clicks that I don't need to uh, just focus on putting in the, the, the type of clickbaity videos and you, you can really do more of the deep dive into the X's and O's parts that, that you find really interesting and just dealing with that whole battle of being a person who is on YouTube and battling against that, that whole clickbait nature of the way that things seem to be operating right now. Yeah, it's definitely, it can definitely be tough. Uh, what I will say is uh, about two, two and a half years ago, I changed the marketing on my channel a bit. Uh, mm. I really didn't even, two and a half years ago, I really didn't uh, adjust my thumbnails or put too much time or thought into my titles. And so just adjusting that helped a lot. And I'm definitely glad I did, even if at times my titles may be a bit clickbaity. So there's a certain, there's definitely a fine line between you don't want to chase the views and you want to stay true to your core content, but at the same time, if you know changing the title a bit or changing the thumbnail can, you know, attract more viewers and even if it may be you know a tad clickbaity, that's something I've, I've learned to be okay with. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, kind of my line is uh, I don't I don't want to put uh, like all capital letter words in the title. I think that kind of crosses a, a bit of a line, yeah. at least to me. Uh, but it, it can definitely be difficult. I, I'll give you an example. Uh, about two or three weeks ago, I made a video on the Lakers' defense. Yep. And to be honest, that's not, some, that's not a video I would have made a year ago because there's not a whole lot interesting with the defense other than you know they, they have elite personnel uh, defensively. I mean, of course, there's always going to be some interesting things, uh, which I tried to highlight, but... That was more of, uh, I had an advertisement in the video and there was a deadline for it and I had to get a video out. Uh, and so, it, and I, you know, after I released the video, you know, I kind of grappled for it, uh, with it for a little while. You know, did I, was this really the best content I could have put out? Was I just uh, making a video on a popular team? Mm. So it's definitely, uh, but, and, and what I also will add is that as my channel has grown and there's more money at stake with each video, that also has made it more difficult to uh, make videos on, let's say, uh, lesser profile teams yeah. or uh, ideas. Because when I was first starting out, you know, there really weren't any stakes. I was just some high school kid making videos, so I can, you know, make a video about some Hornets, uh, Hornets Nets game or something. But I, I will say there, there's more stakes now in terms of revenue. So. Again, that kind of all comes into play. Well, it's very interesting to hear that because I really liked that Lakers video, even if even if you kind of struggled with it at times. Because even though they don't, they have exceptional personnel. I did learn some things in there that I want to talk about a little later, uh, a little later on. But switching gears to to the playoffs now, I think the Raptors Celtics was the most interesting series coming in of the remaining semifinals, and, and I personally think it's been the best one so far. We got two of the best coaches in the NBA and Brad Stevens and Nick Nurse. Just what are some of your just initial thoughts or impressions from these first four games? Yeah, I mean, they've been really enjoyable. Uh, you know, the Raptors have this amazing defense, but at times with their personnel, you know, a lot of matters, of course, they can struggle in the half court. And I think it's pretty clear that Pascal Siakam isn't really that guy yet in terms of a true volume playoff scorer. 
but that's okay. Uh, their yeah. defense is really good, and it's been, of course, it's been interesting to watch the coaching battle between Stevens and Nurse. Uh, and a lot of these games are just decided by such few margins that it can be tough. But I, definitely, I think the pick and roll play of Kemba and Jason Tatum has. I, I, I don't want to say swung the series, but if I'm projecting forward, uh, the Celtics, particularly having Tatum as a scorer, that might just kind of turn things in their favor. Yeah, it's it's definitely really interesting uh, to watch because the the skill level is also so, so high, especially at the guard and the wing position when it's Kyle Lowry, Van Vliet, Pascal Siakam, and then on the flip side with the Celtics, you have Kemba and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. I just want to get your read on – I my personal thoughts is that Nick Nurse is the best coach in the NBA right now because of how daring he is, especially with his defensive adjustments from game to game. I think there may be other guys who are also great at adjusting and great schematically, but I think Nick Nurse is more okay with doing really daring things. For instance, last year in the finals going box and one on Steph Curry, and he's gone to a lot of zone and some other funky defenses in game three and game four. Can you kind of help me and just and just for the audience who's noticing that they're doing something different the last two games, just breaking down what those adjustments have really been and just all the different zones and box and ones and triangle and twos or whatever he's doing, uh, just just help me breaking it, it down for, for people who see it but don't really understand it. Yeah, uh, you know, the zone defense has been huge for the Raptors this series. I, I mentioned it in my video today, but they're holding the Celtics, I believe, to – Point seventy one points per possession on around uh, a little over 10 possessions per game where they've gone zone. So it's definitely been a big deal. And, and they're mixing up, I think their base zone is a 2-1-2, two, two, mm-hmm. but they've mixed up the triangle in two and the box in one, which uh, can be really difficult to kind of uh, see in real time. Uh, but it's, it, it's so successful, I think, because, well, one, they have really good personnel and they can communicate and then with their matchup zone style, it's, it's, it's not like a normal zone. And so they just do a really good job of if, if one player jumps out of his, uh, let's say, his zone area, well, someone else is covering for them. And uh, it's done a really good job of kind of taking away the Celtics pick and roll attack and just kind of uh, uh, just taking them out of their rhythm, and this is and their zone was actually really successful in Game One too. Mm-hmm. I don't think they used it a bunch of in Game Two, but it hasn't just been in Games Three or Four. They they've really had success with the zone just all throughout the series, and I think it's a testament to the zone that you know here we are, uh, Game Five is today, and Brad Stevens really hasn't figured out an answer for it yet. And and it's definitely interesting that the that you say that that the way you view it is that. It, is that it's a two-one-two because because there's at times where it looks like a true three-two zone, but that also might be it's a box and one, and the guy with the ball is just at the top. The what what Nick Nurse does is that it's so interesting because as you mentioned, he's stumping one of the other three or four best coaches in the league because he makes you adjust so quick during the game to what they're doing, and then you can have an adjustment, and then all of a sudden they're out of that defense. You know, it's. It, it's really, really impressive to see what Nick Nurse is, is able to do and, and just mm-hmm. how it all changes so quickly within the game. And just as you said, the communication that the guys on the Raptors have to be able to switch defense. Because I know just as a player, it's really, really hard to do that. Even if it's simple, like if make on a made shot, we're in this defense. On a missed shot, we're in this. 
that can still be really hard to execute. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and yeah, Nick Nurse does a great job. And I think actually Stevens made a good point in his game four uh, uh, beginning of the quarter interview. And he was asked about the zone. And his kind of first thought was uh, they do a really good job of uh, mixing up. The Raptors do a really good job of mixing up where they put their bigs. And yeah. now with, with the zone defense, uh, the bigs are kind of hidden a bit. And then uh, Nurse will also mix up the matchups. So uh, Gasol and Ibaka aren't always on the same players. And uh, you can kind of just tell, even though it was some can, not can, but, you know, interview he had to get through that it's weighing on his mind how yeah. how the Raptors are able to hide their matchups and mix things up defensively. And you did a a really, really good and really interesting video on that cat and mouse battle of the pick and roll offense and defenses for these two teams where it just feels like the last few years, especially maybe just with the Rockets and the way that they just hunt matchups and pick and roll, that so many teams now give the ball to one of their best players and they bring up the guy who's who's being guarded by the weakest or seemingly the weakest defender on the other team, have him set a screen and try to get a switch. That seems like everyone's doing that now. You did a really good video talking about that and, and how the Raptors and the Celtics are adjusting that defensively. What for for the people who just aren't seeing it in real time, what are some things to look for either in game five tonight or things going forward from that video of how teams are that cat and mouse battle of pick and roll offense and defense? Yeah, uh, I would say the one thing I'd definitely be watching for in uh, Game 5 is if the Celtics decide to go small again like they did uh, for seven minutes in Game 4 where they put Grant Williams at the 5 and they switched everything. Mm -hmm. And you said uh, the last five years or so, uh, deep into the playoffs, the Warriors are known for it where, you know, instead of giving a pick-and-roll ball handler who chances are it's going to be really good in the playoffs, uh, instead of giving them a drop coverage or sending two to the ball, if you can just switch everything, that can force them into more isolation and tough basketball. And so if the Raptors uh, guards Lowry and Van Vliet have some success in the pick and roll, I think that's something the Celtics may go back to in game five. So that's something I'm watching for. And then on the Raptors side, I mentioned in my video, I, I always find the pre-switch dynamic yep. uh, where, where the Raptors try to keep their bigs out of the pick and roll, just pretty fun and interesting to watch. And I will say, I didn't have a time to mention it in my video, but the Celtics have been pretty prepared for it in terms of different counters and, uh, you know, still trying to hunt that matchup after the Raptors pre-switch. So that's something I'm looking for. Uh, and I think it's a little complicated to just explain uh, on a podcast, but, uh, yeah, it's definitely interesting. So... This could have been very easily 3-0 series, if not for a miracle Kyle Lowry pass over a 7-foot-5 taco fall to OG and, and Yunobi in the corner for that three. Prediction, who do you think wins this series? I think that the Raptors win this series, uh, but but who do you think wins? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think it's pretty even. Uh, I'll probably lean toward the Celtics just because of uh, Tatum and Walker and how their offense is a little more dynamic and... Uh, but again, it's going it's, it's it's gonna to come down to the margins. Who will hit more threes? Uh, can Jalen Brown step up after a pretty disastrous game four? Yep. And uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it, it'll be interesting for sure. 
So staying in the Eastern Conference for a second, Miami is up 3-1. to one. The Bucks won yesterday. Obviously, Giannis Antetokounmpo re-injured his right ankle. I think at best, he's probably a game-time decision for Game 5 on Tuesday. Miami's up 3-1. to one. Shocking for a lot of people who didn't watch a lot of Miami Heat basketball this year. Just for anyone who didn't watch a lot of Miami or is kind of still a little stunned that they're up 3-1, just what do they do that makes them so good and so difficult to stop on the offensive side of the floor? Yeah, uh, so I, I like how they play on offense. Uh, like a lot of teams, they'll run a bunch of pick and roll. And a, a big part of the series is Drogic getting back to his old ways, and Butler's had success there. And I think Hero is playing the best basketball of his life. Yeah. Uh, but what, what, what I like watching about them is how they play out of the post. So the high post and the low post, and getting it to Dam Adebayo, who's a terrific passer. And then the rest of their players can cut off of them and they can set up the triple handoffs with Duncan Robinson. And uh, so th- that's what I enjoy watching about them. And uh, and then also what I, what I will add about the Heat is uh, just Jay Crowder, just being able to spread the floor and hit shots has been huge because he, he's not, he's really not that great of a three-point shooter historically, but he's been really good uh, ever since he's been in a Heat uniform. And he, he does great work on defense, but being able to spread the court on offense it's definitely been a big deal. 100%. The, that extra shooter on the court so they can really have four shooters at all times around Jimmy Butler or three pure shooters around Adebayo and Butler, that just makes them so much more dangerous. And they're shooting the ball really well. As you said, Jay Crowder is shooting way, way above his level. And everyone in the peanut gallery, Daniel, including myself, can just say the Bucks are down 3-1 and that they need to play Giannis. Obviously, he's dealing with, with an injury, but but before he was hurt, everyone was like, Giannis needs to play more. Chris Middleton needs to play more. Anyone can can say that. But what are some things that they could actually do schematically or X's and O's wise to adjust and try to keep their comeback going in this series? Yeah, uh, you know, first I will add, while I watched the first three games very closely, I actually didn't uh, get to see game four okay. uh, because I was uh, busy making my videos. So, Again, this may be a bit off, but, uh, you know, defensively, I, I'm a big fan of when they shrink the floor, with we'll be honest. And they, after not doing that much in game one, in games two and three, I thought they did a better job where Giannis uh, helped in the paint. And I did look at the box score yesterday. Uh, Jay Crowder was six of 12 from three, which is obviously really good for the Heat. That's 50%. But just the fact that he he took 12 threes, I think shows the emphasis the Bucks have to, uh, if they're bringing help, it's going to be off Crowder. Yeah. And they kind of live with him shooting. Uh, so you can argue that hasn't really paid off. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a big fan of them shrinking the floor. Offensively, you, you know, their offense can definitely get a bit stagnant. Uh, and their three-point shooting, while they while they go five-out spacing, uh, some of their guys, such as Ivan Chenzo and Lopez, though he's shot well this series, but yeah. some of their other guys really aren't too threatening. So it can be tough at times. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of when they use Giannis as a role man. And and Bledsoe run the pick and roll. But, you know, give a lot of credit to the Heat defense. They're, they're very switchable. Butler and Crowder have been tremendous defensively. Adebayo, of course. And so they definitely make it tough. Switching over to the Western Conference now for, for a second. Russell Westbrook said after game two last night that he's just running around out there and that he's going to watch a lot of film 
and see what he should be doing or could be doing in game three uh, tomorrow night. If you are in that film session helping, you know, helping him out, what are some of the things that you would encourage or suggest for him to try to do in game three? Yeah, good question. Uh, I mean, you, you, you'd probably not want to see him settle for so many threes like he did in game two. Yeah. Uh, you know, when they're, they're trapping Harden, he's most devastating when he catches it uh, at the foul line or near the three-point line, and he can attack uh, four on three. So that's something I would advocate for. But, yeah, it was not a good game three, uh, game two. And where, where the Rockets really lost the game was when Harden was off the court and they just couldn't really score the ball. Yeah. And so Westbrook will have to be better in those minutes. And, you know, it's weird some of these playoff series. It just comes down to uh, when Harden is off the floor, can Austin Rivers give them five points, uh, whether they're fluky or not? Can he give them something? And in game two, he, he didn't give them much at all. Yeah, that's definitely really, really interesting because it's for so many teams, right, when they, when they rely on their one superstar, you could say the same thing for the Lakers. If LeBron's off the court or Davis is off the court, can someone else, can Kyle Kuzma hit a three-pointer? Can Alex Caruso get a layup? Uh, can just someone else just step up in that short period of time when the Stars are, are on the bench? Yeah, completely agree. Uh, yeah. So so speaking about your, your Lakers video highlighting their, their defense, everyone knows their flaws on offense, right? A lack of three-point shooting, a third option outside of LeBron or Davis. One of the things that I found really interesting about your video highlighting their their defense was almost like their activity level on on pick and rolls with Davis and JaVale McGee and the way they is that the way that they can contest shots. What is it about their defense just as a whole with the just their roster that is able to elevate them to that championship uh contender status? Yeah, I mean, the main thing is just, that in terms of personnel, they're absolutely stacked. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the guard, Green, Danny Green is an, a really good defender, has definitely lost lateral quickness, and we saw in Game 2 how he guarded Harden less. I think they started with LeBron on Harden. Uh, but KCP's good. Uh, Caruso, just an underrated player. Uh, he's a really good defender. And then, you know, people talk about Davis as Defensive Player of the Year, and I definitely... Think he deserves that kind of uh, that kind of praise. He, he's excellent in the pick and roll. And uh, I, one thing I couldn't mention in my video, but I looked at the stats in terms of how he impacts three point shots when he's the closest defender. Yeah. And over the past five years or so, he's always in like the top uh, five, or, uh, the top ninety fifth percentile uh, or so in terms of uh, forcing misses on that. And I think that's clear to see when watching how he can contest shots and uh lebron has been really good on d and uh he's able to play off ball and read the passing lanes and in general they just play really big so there's very few players they can pick on and uh even when they downsized in game two where they didn't play Dwight howard uh they still are a pretty big team and uh, especially when Kuzma is playing well defensively then there's not too many holes to pick on yeah, and Kuzma has been one of my personal surprises from the bubble, the whole time down the bubble, just of just how hard he seemingly is playing and how locked in he is on the defense side of the floor. Because you could argue that during the regular season he he wasn't always locked in, and that's been a huge, huge thing for for the Lakers 
just just as a team. It's it's early in the series. Do you think that the Rockets have have a legit chance to to beat and knock off the top seeded Lakers? I do think they have a, a decent chance. Uh, if, if I were to put it in percentages, uh, maybe like forty percent ish, maybe thirty five percent. So I definitely think think they do have a chance. What I will say, and we saw this in Game Two, is that. I think it's pretty clear LeBron is still a top two player in the world. And yes. when he's aggressive and he takes the rim, some of their shooting issues become less of a problem. And all of a sudden, Daniel House and Robert Covington don't look as good defensively. So, uh, But the Rockets definitely cause problems for them on both ends of the floor, really, with their switching on defense and their spacing and Harden on offense. So... They, I mean, even in game two where they lost, they were still generating really good shots and they were still forcing the Lakers to rotate. And it, it may just come down to hitting shots, but I, I, I will give the Lakers the edge because of LeBron, Davis, and when they amp it up, they really can cause problems uh, for offenses. Yes, yeah, as, as Jeff Van Gundy loves to say, it's it's a make-or-miss league. And sometimes if, if you make shots, it's it's your league in a way. So staying out in L.A. but going to the other team, the Clippers versus the Nuggets, Nikola Jokic said after game two, because someone asked about his patience, and he said that he's so patient on offense because he can't really run that fast, so it's his only option. <laughs> but, when you, but, but, but when you watch the games, just what is his patience and his ability to be patient uh, – affect the offense positively and just make him and that whole uh, Denver team so special? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's an amazing player. Uh, the way he can read the defense and in the post, he can overpower guys. And if you send a double team, he'll pick out and find the open guy. So, yeah, Jokic, he, he's really a tremendous player. He, and I think we saw, especially in the Utah series, how he was effective with the pick and pop. Yeah. And if, if you can shoot 40% on pick-and-pop threes, that can uh, change defensive schemes, uh, definitely. I also like how he doesn't just pick-and-pop out to three all the time, but he also will pick-and-pop with Murray especially to that top-the-key free-throw line area somewhere in there. So I think that you force the defense to collapse on him. He's such a good passer. He's just a little bit closer for his jumper, and also if the defense collapses, he can pick apart anyone from 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 that area on on the court. Yeah, agreed. And you know, if he gets it and he doesn't have a shot, well, they're right into a, a dribble handoff on the opposite side. For so sure, it, it, it can it can flow nicely. Now, the Clippers, on the other hand, might have the best roster from top to bottom in the entire league this year, but they struggle with consistency. And we see this, we, they came out, were awesome in game one, really struggled in the first half, and really all game in, in game two. Struggled with consistency in, in the Dallas series as well. What is it, you know, is, is there something that, that you're seeing when, when you're watching these games that are causing these consistency issues? Because no one doubts their talent level or the guys on their team and their uh, true championship contender level status, but... Are they consistent enough to win to, to win the title? And just what is there anything that, that you're seeing that are causing these consistency issues? That's a good question. Uh, I will first add that I haven't seen Game Two yet. Okay. Uh, actually, after we record this, I'll probably watch it ahead of Game Three tonight. Yep. Uh, 
but I mean, I, I'm a big fan of the Clippers. If uh, if I had to pick some team to win it all, it would probably be them. Uh, Kawhi Leonard, you know, Kawhi Leonard has, has been really consistent with his scoring ability, and it's uh, George has been yet the one guy who's not always as consistent. Uh, so I can't really, I mean, I don't know why they're not more consistent. I think Dallas was a tough first-round opponent. Yeah, very but tough. You definitely make good, you definitely make a good point because even in that game one, which I, which I did see, uh, their defense didn't come out like gangbusters. They were allowing some pretty bad defensive breakdowns with maybe lack of communication and uh, lack of sense of urgency. And a lot of basketball is just playing hard, as, as hard as you can, and having the intensity be where it needs to be. So uh, I, I would guess that in Game 2, that was part of their problem. So as we approach the end here, Daniel, and I really, really appreciate all the time, is there anything that, that you have noticed so far in the playoffs that, that we haven't had a chance to touch on today uh, just, just anything you've noticed that that people should be keeping an eye on going forward. Uh, I mean, I, I found it interesting how successful the Rockets' defense has been so far, with how they're able to switch and play such a small lineup, and they really haven't been beaten on the boards that much mm-hmm. uh, in the OKC series or the Lakers series. Uh, one, I guess, one thing to keep in mind, especially in the Lakers Rockets series, is can the Lakers keep the Rockets off the foul line? Uh, I think that was an underrated aspect of OKC's uh, round one success. They barely fouled Houston at all, who normally yeah. gets to the line a lot. And that's one of those things that's really hard to see, uh, but that's why we have advanced stats, and that's what makes websites like cleaningtheglass.com so nice that mm-hmm. you can go and you know look at the stats. So. It'll definitely be an interesting aspect of the Lakers Rockets series, and it definitely helps that they benched uh, Dwight Howard. Not that he's a bad player, but it's really unbelievable how much that guy fouls. Uh, yeah, it just stuck to me. It's it's very interesting too because he's a veteran. You you attribute the fouling issues to a guy like Mitchell Robinson, who's a jumping bean, but in his third year in in the NBA, and not someone who's been around since two thousand four. Exactly, and I think what it is is Howard knows he's only going to play maybe 15 minutes a night, and so he just doesn't hold back. And yeah. I, I, I mean, for some, for the I don't know if you saw all the games in the Lakers Blazer series, but he was just a foul machine. Yeah, machine. But it's it's interesting that you mentioned the Rockets defense because I don't know if there's an X and O's thing for this or if there's an analytical explanation for it, but. The way that they switch on defense, just the way that I see it, is they're almost, for a lack of a better term, Jedi mind-tricking the other team into hunting seemingly advantageous one-on-one isolation matchups and forcing the other team to ISO so much and making them extremely stagnant and taking them out of what the other team wants to do because they they think, oh, Anthony Davis on P.J. Tucker. Anthony Davis is six inches taller. This is a great matchup. And then it's like, actually, this isn't a great matchup. Or James Harden, oh, we can post up James Harden. Actually, you can't really post up James Harden. He's an awesome p- post defender. It's interesting. It's, it feels like they're just con- they control the pace of play and almost Jedi mind trick other teams into getting out of what they want to do. Yeah, uh, and I'll throw a question at you. Um, mm-hmm. uh, play E3 basketball. Are, are there many teams that kind of switch everything and cause people trouble at that level? Or what do you see um, at that end? Yeah, so it's it's really interesting. A lot of the teams that do stuff differently 
is because they're like the Rockets, they don't have the size to uh, compete with some other teams. So, so for instance, in, in the NESCAC conference where, where I played for the last four years, Colby College, the last uh, two years, and really this past year, they had an exceptional team. They were, I think, I think they finished twenty-four and five. They had some injuries down the the stretch, but they basically started five pure awesome shooters. But 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 all between five ten and six four, six five. But and they switched everything. So so when we played them, it was oh we got our big guy on a switch with the five ten six foot guy in the post. But they would so aggressively front that we would throw those lob passes. Sometimes we didn't see that that was, oh, this is what they wanted to do. They're sneaking up behind, or we're just hunting the matchups and the switches because we think, oh, we can get an advantageous thing. It got us out of our flow on, on our offense. It's 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 pretty interesting when, when the teams run it really well and communicate well the way the Rockets do and just stick with it of switch everything. It can be really, really effective. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh what was your question that you were asking me about the defense? No, I, I, I was just saying, like, I that, that's just the way that I viewed it. It's like, I don't know truly the X's and O's of what they're doing or if they're really doing anything special, but they're almost baiting these teams and Jedi mind-shaking them into not doing what the Lakers want to do or what the Thunder really want to do on the offensive side side of the floor. Yeah, and, and what I'll add there is, I don't, I'm, I don't think it's talked about necessarily enough, but... They're doing it with really good defenders. Uh, I think that's an important point. So it's not just their scheme. It's, you know, Covington, I believe he made all defense last year. And Tucker is a a terrific defender. And when Eric Gordon and Harden dial in, they're good defenders. And most importantly, they're in a scheme that fits their defensive strengths, where their physical strength uh, is, is, uh, is really shown with this scheme. So uh, it's not something that, I don't think a lot of teams can replicate, but they've gone out of their way to get defensive players who can switch. Uh, even someone like Jeff Green, who may not be a great defender, but he can stay in front of guards and uh, bang a bit in the post. So it kind of fits what they're trying to do. And it's like one, one observation I've had is in the past, the Warriors have done a good job of being able to attack the switching with some off-ball movement. Yep. And of course, it certainly helps that they have, have Curry and Clay. But just the fact that they play like that during the regular season makes it pretty simple to uh, play with off-ball movement and get 10 to 15 points off of cuts and screens uh, in a game. Whereas I think we're seeing with OKC and the Lakers is, and this is most teams, if you don't play like that during the regular season and you're all pick and roll, then it's going to be really tough to try to add off-ball movement in a cohesive way that can break down the switching defense. Uh, and so it kind of just gives more credit and more gives me more appreciation to those Warriors teams. 100%. 100%. Well, Daniel, really, really appreciate all the time. For anyone who is hearing you for the first time today and says, hey, I got to check out this guy's YouTube channel and, and, and follow him on Twitter, where can people find you on YouTube and channel? Or, sorry, YouTube yeah, my- and, and Twitter. My channel is called Coach Daniel, and on Twitter, my handle is Coach Daniel Twenty One. And yeah, awesome for everyone to do that. Go do that. Follow, subscribe. It's awesome, awesome content. Couldn't recommend it more. All right, Daniel, really, really appreciate uh, the time and best of luck going forward with making the videos and, and enjoy the enjoy the rest of the of the postseason. 
Thank you, and thanks for having me on, and I enjoyed this conversation. That'll do it for this episode of The Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. You can also follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We'll be back later this week. Until then, take care and make it a great day.